Celebrate and save at Ashley's anniversary sale. With Hot Buys, your choice of color starting at just $3.99. Ashley Sleep mattresses starting at $2.50. Plus, receive a free adjustable base with select mattress purchases. And shop top mattress brands like Stearns & Foster, Tempur-Pedic, Purple, and Beautyrest Black with 60-month special financing only at Ashley. Subject to credit approval. No minimum purchase required. Minimum monthly payment, down payment, tax, and delivery may be required. See store for details. Drowning in status updates and lost in endless emails? Break free with ClickUp.com, the one app to replace them all. Imagine a world where your team collaborates effortlessly in one shared space. No more chaos, just ClickUp. Your projects, tasks, and communication unified at last. Transform how you work with customizable views, seamless integration, and real-time updates. ClickUp is your shortcut to more productive days and happier teams. Join the millions of productive teams already streamlining their workflow. Visit ClickUp.com to get started. Before we begin, just a note that this episode contains explicit racist and anti-Semitic language and descriptions of violence. Joining us now, Rudolph Giuliani. Welcome. Thank you, John. Uh, I, I don't know what you can say and can't say. Are you running? I intend to. You intend to God run? God willing, everything yeah. remains uh, the same and family situation is in good condition. I would very much like to do it again. In December of 1991, four months after the riots in Crown Heights, Rudolph Giuliani went on the Charlie Rose Show. He was announcing that, once again, he was going to run for mayor of New York City. Mind you, this was almost two years before the next mayoral election. What will be different this time? What did you learn about the way? <laughs> you expect to win, for one, but... I think I could write an encyclopedia about yeah. what you'll learn when you run for mayor of New York City. It is, it's in fact the second toughest job in America. And it's probably- Giuliani lost to David Dinkins in 1989 by a mere 47,000 votes. The Hasidic Jewish community voted overwhelmingly for Dinkins, putting him over the top. Now, in the wake of the riot, Giuliani thought he could peel them off. Of course, this wasn't just pitched to the Lubavitchers in Crown Heights. It was an appeal to lots of white voters across the city. David Dinkins too often retreats into black victimization. And I think it's a tragedy. I mean, there is there's a tremendous problem of racism in our society, of prejudice, to then use it as a shield against political criticism, to me, is a horrible thing to do because it demeans the whole yeah. concept of, of racism. And what David Dinkins was doing was using it as a political tactic His plan was to focus relentlessly on law and order, and in doing so, not so subtly, to make sure this campaign was about race. Meanwhile, in Crown Heights. The stakes are high and the goal is elusive. The game is a metaphor. It is an experiment in race relations played out on a basketball court. That's right, basketball. At the time, this was reported on as if the future of the neighborhood depended on it. It's not a game. If they want to call it a game, it's the game of life. In this game, sworn enemies, blacks and Jews, are side by side, scoring points. The players choose up sides, so the teams are blacks and Jews, not blacks versus Jews. It's not unusual to use sports to bring distant factions together. And in Crown Heights, this approach is working. While Giuliani is making the rounds on talk shows, Mayor Dinkins is championing new programs for the Crown Heights Youth Collective. Richard Green, a black community organizer in Crown Heights, worked with the mayor's office to help organize the basketball games. If young boys can come together and play on the basketball court, I think the battlefields will become obsolete and the playing field will be what we're going to be striving towards. 
The events were sweet, in a way. And for the most part, the teenagers seemed to get a kick out of them. But there was something about the whole program that smacked of ineffectiveness. Like, how is basketball going to help make the Jews in Crown Heights feel safer? Or the Black residents feel any less like second-class citizens? To a lot of New Yorkers, all of this was classic Dinkins. Endearing and maybe even a little inspiring, but ultimately just pretty naive. Dinkins always seemed to be behind the curve. Andrew Kurtzman is a longtime political reporter in New York. Whether it was the budget or crime or the inevitable disasters of the day, he was always following and never leading. Dinkins seemed oddly removed from the crisis engulfing the city. Many New Yorkers were appalled by the passivity and the incompetence of the Dinkins administration in containing the violence out in Crown Heights. He was enormously reactive and kind of characteristically passive. This is to say, there was a clear opening for a hard-lined law-and-order candidate to come in and make a case for New York that was the opposite of Dinkins's gorgeous mosaic. This episode is about how Rudy Giuliani used the Crown Heights riot to rise to power and the role he played in a very different riot. One you've probably never heard of, involving thousands of drunken cops rampaging in Lower Manhattan. I'm Collier Meyerson, and this is Love Thy Neighbor. Episode 5, Sound of the Police. Anti-Semitism and racism grew in the last year and the last two years. The response too often has been to hide, to flee, and to have our city officials, too many of them, not responding and not fighting back. On the campaign trail, Giuliani started adopting the language the Lubavitch themselves used to describe the riot. None of the euphemisms can escape that fact for you. Let's call it what it is, a program searching out and trying to find Jewish people because they were Jewish to beat them and to harm them because of their religion. Henya Lane, the Lubavitch matchmaker we met in episode three, was one of many Crown Heights residents whose positive opinions of Dinkins were starting to shift. Remember what she said about his first run for office in 1989? I thought that Mayor Dinkins was the sweetest man. I'm so happy that we had a mayor that was black because we're colorblind. By 1991, she changed her opinion. After the pogrom, because I lived in the pogrom after I saw that, zero respect. I said, how could he? How could he think that he's going to let them vent? Let them vent. One of the rumors going around during the riot was that Dinkins told the NYPD to let protesters, quote, vent. A ton of Lubavitchers talked about it then and still talk about it today. And Giuliani was happy to keep reminding them. The incident that began those terrible days of violence was a tragedy. It was a tragic accident. And then, for two days, there was vandalism. There were attacks on police officers, and there were attacks on members of their community, innocent members of the community. No one arrested for two days. 
Giuliani isn't telling the truth here. Most famously, Limerick Nelson, who stabbed Yankel Rosenbaum, was arrested on the first night. And 14 people were arrested within 24 hours of the crash. And once again, why? Why did that happen? In this city, the greatest city in the world, it happened because of fear, because of lack of courage, because of unwillingness to stand up to the mob and to say very simply, the first person to violate the law, the first person to break a window, to harm a police officer, to harm an innocent citizen, gets arrested. That's what the law is all about. And the leaders of our city have to be there. Then, not now, then. Giuliani's courting the Jewish vote with a newfound sense of urgency. There was no way that Giuliani was going to wrest black voters away from David Dinkins. He was losing that contest. You know, 95% of black voters were siding with Dinkins in that race. Andrew Kurtzman again. So there was no political downside towards Giuliani's siding in a very extreme way with uh, the Orthodox Jewish community. And by then, the Jewish community in general that was outraged by the lack of control out in, uh, in the streets in Crown Heights. And he went very, very strong. Giuliani had found the missing ingredient from his failed 1989 campaign. It didn't matter whether it was actually true. Those four days in Crown Heights allowed Giuliani to run a dog whistling or often just straight up racist law and order campaign. You couldn't gin up enough fear about David Dinkins based on his record prior to the riots. Mark Winston Griffith, who we heard from last episode, was a volunteer on Dinkins' campaign in 1989. Now, what was ironic about David Dinkins is this was the most mild-mannered, moderate, you know, and moderation-seeking elected official you, you would find. In fact, that's why he was elected in the first place. Because, yes, he was a black man, but he was a safe black man. In many ways, much safer than Barack Obama was perceived to some extent, right? Um, I mean, this was a man who was a product of the democratic machine in New York City and whose whole persona was based on accommodation, negotiation, and again, moderation. And there were a lot of forces of racial resentment who were responding not just to the election of a black mayor, but to this growth of crime and disorder in the city that was perceived to be racialized. Alex Vitali is the author of the book, The End of Policing, and a professor at Brooklyn College. Black squeegee men, young black people engaged in graffiti, Black people disproportionately involved in the rising number of homicides. Black people involved in street-level drug dealing. And so all of this gets melded together into this idea that a rejection of Dinkins is a rejection of a kind of Black city out of control. And that what we need is a white ethnic prosecutor to come in and restore order through intensive and invasive policing of Black people. Giuliani knew that the largely white police force hated Dinkins. It didn't matter that Dinkins had actually pledged $1.6 billion to the Safe Streets, Safe City program. 
or that under Dinkins, the NYPD hired around 6,000 more cops and crime rates had gone down by 4.4%. None of that mattered in the face of Dinkins' handling of the riot in Crown Heights. And his relationship with the NYPD was made even worse 10 months later when he began pressing for an independent civilian complaint review board, the agency that oversees police misconduct. Police abuse of young black males in New York City has been a terrible stain on the city for decades. Here's Andrew Kurtzman again. And David Dinkins was the first black mayor, and he was justifiably focused on tackling that problem. And one of the methods was his insistence on an all-civilian police complaint review board. The police union predictably was not thrilled with this idea. And on September 16, 1992, the officers made their feelings known. On this afternoon, a crowd of off-duty cops gathers in downtown Manhattan to protest Dinkins' civilian complaint review board. But very quickly, it becomes clear that the object of their scorn isn't the civilian review board so much as it is Dinkins himself. Last October, New York Magazine published an article entitled White Riot by Laura Namias. She recreates the scene in detail. Among the protesters, there are signs that show Dinkins as a cartoon with big lips, nose, and an afro, some reading washroom attendant. They chant, the mayor's on crack and Dinkins gotta go. Egging all these cops on is none other than Rudy Giuliani. The mayor doesn't know why the morale of the New York City Police Department is so low. He blames it on me. He blames it on you. The reason the morale of the police department is so low is one reason and one reason alone. David Dinkins! The group had secured a permit to demonstrate on Murray Street, just outside City Hall. And around 10,000 people show up way more than anticipated. And here was the thing about Murray Street back in 1992. It was lined with Irish pubs. So a lot of these protesters, nearly half of whom are cops, aren't just agitated. They're also drunk and getting increasingly rowdy. It was, quote, a beer-swilling, traffic-snarling, epithet-hurling melee, according to the New York Times. There is trouble, new trouble, in this country's largest police department. The latest evidence, an unruly demonstration last week here in New York. Some of the protesters made racial remarks, and partly because of that, it is still reverberating. As Giselle Fernandez reports, the problem wasn't calling out the police. They were the police. But some of them out there yesterday who were calling out nigger, for instance, why would the people of our communities have confidence that they have the capacity to handle a tense situation in a minority community? Soon, these protesters are not just demonstrating on Murray Street. There's no other word for it, really. They're rioting. They start stomping on parked cars and attempting to storm City Hall. Soon, they barge through the barricades set up to contain the demonstration and storm the Brooklyn Bridge. And the on-duty officers, well, they're pretty much just letting it happen. These are not peaceful protesters. One off-duty cop kicks a New York Times reporter in the stomach. Another group of officers begins shaking the car of Mary Pinkett, 
the longtime Black City Council member who's stuck in traffic on the bridge. It seems like an attempt to frighten and intimidate her. A Black cameraman for CBS is called a nigger by a cop, as is Una Clark, another Black City Council member. Jimmy Breslin, who wrote about the riot for Newsday, witnesses an officer yelling with a can of beer at his lips, how did you like the niggers beating you up in Crown Heights? Another said, now you got a nigger right inside City Hall. How do you like that? A nigger mayor. Eric Adams, the current mayor of New York City, was a transit cop at the time. He told Newsday that the scene was, quote, right out of the 1950s, a drunk, racist lynch mob storming City Hall and coming in here to get themselves a nigger. After the break, Giuliani refuses to stand down, and David Dinkins fights for his political life. The connection between you and your therapist matters. That's why Alma focuses on helping you find the right someone to talk to, not just anyone. When you browse their online directory, you can filter your search by what you want to focus on, like anxiety, relationships, or big life transitions. You can also specify preferences around gender, race, faith, and more to help you find someone who's more likely to understand where you're coming from. Alma also makes it easy for therapists to navigate insurance. That's why 95% of providers in their directory accept insurance for sessions, so you can find care that's affordable too. You want to talk to someone, but not just anyone. Alma is there to help you find the right fit. Visit helloalma.com slash notjustanyone to schedule a free consultation today. That's helloalma.com slash notjustanyone. When the whole family comes together to watch the game, nobody wants to miss a second of the action to run to the grocery store. With Instacart, you can get all your weekly groceries in as fast as an hour. Less time shopping means more game time. Let's go. Visit instacart.com to get free delivery on your first three orders. Offer valid for a limited time. $10 minimum per order. Additional terms apply. Dana Carvey and David Spade here. You might know our podcast, Fly on the Wall, featuring guests from across the entertainment industry. We decided to do a spinoff called Superfly, and it's fun. It's just two of us riffing on current events, pop culture, catching up, impressions. Joe, Trump's trying to be a dictator. Yeah, she says, uh, you know, bump on the tater tots. Joe, no. <laughs> <laughs> Listen to and follow Superfly on the Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcast. Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. The day after the police riot, Giuliani went on Charlie Rose and refused to capitulate. The exact opposite, actually. 
He doubled down on his stance as the candidate who would be loyal to law enforcement no matter what. I have never heard of a city in which a mayor can remain mayor with a police department that believes that he is, that he is irresponsibly leading them. This would be, this would be virtually uh, unprecedented. The mayor has lost an entire segment that is very, very important to this city. In the same episode, we see Dinkins doing what could not have been easy. He's publicly voicing his support of the NYPD a day after thousands of cops have been chanting personal racist slogans about him. And I think we have the finest police department in the world. I really do. I say it all the time. I say it all the time. This is not new. And so when, when those that you hold in such high esteem, when they behave in this fashion, and keep in mind, this wasn't at night in the dark where maybe you couldn't see who they were. They were out there in full view of everything. Six days after the riot, Lemrick Nelson is put on trial for the murder of Yankel Rosenbaum, which took place in the initial hours after the fatal car accident. The jury acquits Nelson on all charges, and many people across the city are outraged. This is a blatant miscarriage of justice. He identified his killer, and that's not enough in this city. We want justice. A Jew was killed. According to police testimony, Nelson had confessed to a police officer. But the trial seemed to hinge on how the investigation took place. Some saw the acquittal as a vindication for those in Crown Heights who were mistreated by a broken justice system. Others saw it as clear anti-Semitism, a disregard for Rosenbaum's life. Nelson would be found guilty of stabbing Yankel Rosenbaum 10 years later during his federal trial. Less than three weeks after the acquittal of Lemrick Nelson, Governor Mario Cuomo orders an investigation into the administration's handling of the riot. Overseen by Richard Gergenti, the state's director of criminal justice, this would become the official report from which we drew a lot of our own research. It was released eight months later in July of 1993. The headline. Quote, the mayor did not act in a timely and decisive manner in requiring the police department to meet his own stated objectives. This is just about as ugly as it gets. Mayor David Dinkins fighting for his political life tonight after the release of a damning report that criticizes him for his failure to defuse the 1991 Crown Heights riots. The timing of the release of the Crown Heights report just four months before the city's election could prove pivotal in deciding the neck and neck race with political opponent Rudolph Giuliani. The mayor's Republican challenger avoiding the press tonight after only days ago saying Dinkins was sleepwalking through the riots. Some say Giuliani's low profile is a politically calculated move to stay out of the fray and avoid creating a sympathetic backlash for Dinkins. Dinkins did not let the police crack down hard enough or quickly enough on the rioters. That's the takeaway. And now, in the aftermath of the report, he was once again being attacked from all sides. Jews saying he didn't protect them. Black residents saying he was more concerned with the Hasidim than he was with them. Even the report says that the mayor knew about this and how serious it was that this was an assault upon an innocent community of men, women, and children and elderly Holocaust survivors. This is Beth Galinsky, executive director of the Jewish Action Alliance. He did not do what any mayor should do or what any decent human being should do which is to say, how can I sit by and let an innocent community be attacked? 
And here's Reverend Daughtry, a longtime and often controversial black Christian leader from Crown Heights. In the black community, in the region, they call him Dinkenstein because there's a widespread feeling that he spends too much time in the Jewish community. In the summer of 1993, Dinkins made a kind of last-ditch effort to win some love back from the Jews in Crown Heights by going to Jerusalem. Now, David Dinkins said, would you go to me, go with me to Israel? I said, what? Why, why, why are you going to Israel? Peter Noel was a writer for the Village Voice at the time. He said, I, I you know, there are some people that we, we need to talk to. There's some people who these people in Crown Heights would listen to. And we need to go. <laughs> so I go. Teddy Collick was the mayor of Jerusalem at the time. Dinkins hoped that the mayor of Jerusalem might persuade the Lubavitchers in Crown Heights to give him another chance. But even in Israel, people were still mad at Dinkins. The trip didn't seem to change anyone's mind. By the fall, his support among the Jewish community was far below the previous election. Among these Jewish voters, anguish from the anti-Jewish violence in Crown Heights lingers. I would like to see a change. We know what we got. Let's try somebody else for a change. Maybe a new broom sweeps better. The mayor of the city or the governor of New York City has to act promptly upon a situation. He cannot dawdle or he cannot just spend time thinking about it. He must be able to be decisive and act immediately and act swiftly. It was a toss-up on election day. Impossible to know how all the intense racial dynamics of the campaign were going to shake out. In addition to winning over much of the Jewish support that was so crucial to Dinkins in 89, Giuliani had white voters firmly on his side. But all his flagrant dog-whistling had a potential downside, too. Giuliani's favorability rating was down below 33%, really low. And if enough Black voters, angered by his rhetoric, came out for Dinkins, that could make the difference. When all the votes were counted, Giuliani won by nearly the exact slim margin of votes that he'd lost by in 1989, becoming the first Republican mayor of New York since 1965. The borough that flipped the most from the previous race? Brooklyn. And in Crown Heights, Jewish voters turned out overwhelmingly for Giuliani. It's not only, it's important for the entire community because what we've gone through for the last two years, especially through the riots and the pogrom Crown Heights, tonight is an especially sweet victory for all of us. It's entire for the entire city of New York, not just Crown Heights. This is Jacob Goldstein, a rabbi in Crown Heights who served for decades on a local community board in Crown Heights. He's being interviewed at Giuliani's victory party. For him, the reason for the swing was clear. Why did the Jewish vote apparently abandon uh, Mayor Dinkins and such? Is it because of Crown Heights that they did not think that uh, he responded uh, as strongly as he should have, perhaps? Absolutely correct. Crown Heights was the buzzword for the Jewish community, except a very small slim that didn't vote. I'd say for the majority, that was the buzzword, and that proved the difference. Almost immediately, Giuliani began using the riot in Crown Heights as a justification for a new kind of policing in New York. There wasn't even a pretense of community policing and little talk of connecting residents to social services. It was fight crime and restore order no matter the impact on poor black and brown communities. Suddenly, huge numbers of people committing minor crimes like possessing small amounts of marijuana or urinating in public were being thrown in jail. 
Here's Rudy Giuliani talking about his accomplishments 100 days into his first term. I think the single most important thing that we've done is to restore for many people in the city a sense that we can solve problems, that we are not just a victim of circumstances, that we can have hope and optimism, that we can make New York City a much better place. And the commissioner will be unveiling many of the other plans to restore the quality of life in New York City so that we don't just accept the decline that has taken place, but we kind of move it back in the other direction. What did this restoration of, quote, quality of life look like? Here's Peter Noel again. He's, he's enforcing this, this broken windows theory. You know, he wanted to, you know, say, I'm the new sheriff in town. I'm going to get black people and tell them, hey, you, you only come out when you have to go to the groceries. I don't want you hanging out in the corners. Uh, I have a group of young cops who claims we own the night. And, and that is what, so he sent these goons out there. Police officers uh, started stopping unlawfully, frisking. And then, and then reporting, they were, these people were not involved in any criminal activity. They, they were just black. And Giuliani and his new police commissioner, William Bratton, were publicizing all of these arrests as a revolution in policing that would change the future of New York City. Giuliani and Bratton, in part because they are in the center of the media world here in New York City. Professor Alex Vitali again. They begin to, you know, perpetuate this idea through the media that the crime drop is the result of broken windows policing and this New York miracle, even though crime is falling all across the country. Crime rates may have been falling in New York and elsewhere, but reports of police brutality in the city were rising. Under Giuliani, complaints against police increased by 56% in 1994 and 1995. Civil lawsuits against the city for police misconduct also increased. But that wasn't the story for a long time. Instead of seeing the surge in lawsuits against the police as a sign of a problem, cities across the country adopted the New York model. Professor Alex Vitali. There's no question that Giuliani's time in New York helps to change the whole framework of not just policing, but how our cities think about these urgent social policy challenges. A move away from the idea that the solution is going to look like more publicly supported housing, more community-based mental health service, towards a vision that says we're going to manage those problems through intensive and invasive policing of those communities. Over the next three decades, this form of policing becomes the norm under Democratic and Republican administrations alike. Even Bill de Blasio, New York City's most recent progressive mayor, who came into office largely on the promise of ending stop and frisk, chose none other than Bill Bratton to lead the NYPD, the same guy who ran the department under Giuliani. New York's new mayor, Eric Adams, took office last month. He's the second black mayor in the city's history, and also a former cop. This shouldn't come as a surprise, I suppose, but... All the issues that boiled over 30 years ago defined Adams' campaign. Racial tension, policing, protests. As an aside, he's made a real effort to cultivate a positive relationship with the Lubavitchers in Crown Heights over the years. And they supported him overwhelmingly in the election. His own story is an echo of the past, too. He says he went into policing at the urging of community leaders who were responding to the deaths of Black men at the hands of the NYPD including Herbert Daughtry, 
the Reverend from Crown Heights. Reverend Herbert Daughtry and others, uh, they, they got tired of fighting from uh, the outside that they later assembled uh, 13 of us in, in the basement of the House of the Lord's Church and told us that they wanted us to go into law enforcement and fight from within. And I was reluctant. You could only imagine. But I had so much faith in them. I was the youth leader of the Black United Front at the time. And I joined. So Adams is this kind of contradictory figure. You know, he's chosen policing as a career. At the same time, he's also a public critic of the police department. But the framework of that criticism is somewhat limited uh, rather than a broader critique of policing that says, you know, we should be investing in solving community problems by addressing these kinds of profound economic inequalities that these communities face, which really hasn't been on his agenda with the same clarity. Last August, we walked over to a small park a few blocks from where the streets erupted 30 years ago. There was an event going on, the One Crown Heights Festival, to mark the anniversary. This is the One Crown Heights um, Festival, which brings together diverse communities across Crown Heights to have a fun day together and to uh, participate as a one community. The idea for the festival is basically, let's not rehash old wounds. Let's share a nice afternoon together. More summer block party than solemn grievance session. There's food trucks, booths with games, a group playing steel drums, and kids forming a dance line. Just to let you know the lay of the land a little bit, we have adult vendors on that side to the left. We have kids vendors and fun tables on the right side. The crowd's pretty mixed, more Caribbean than Lubavitch. But there are definitely members of both communities hanging around. And some of the newest additions to Crown Heights, young white people. There's a sparsely attended dialogue circle, that's what they call it, where neighbors are talking politely about issues like affordable housing and public safety. There's a decent number of cops here, but for the most part, they're just lingering around the perimeter talking amongst themselves. It's not like there's no acknowledgement at all of what happened back in August 91. 30 years ago, we lost two people, Gavin Gato, Cato and Colonel Rosenbaum. Those two passed away about 30 years, and we have to show some compassion and love for those. It's just that the whole vibe is very similar to the vibe at Officer Vinny's retirement party, where we started this podcast. It's all good here. The past is the past. We can all get along. And thank the community affairs. Our police officers is with us. Congratulations. You won't, we got a little dancing for you guys to do later on. That's on your break, okay? We strolled around and canvassed the crowd at random, trying to get a sense of what people made of the event, what the anniversary meant to them. And we found that for some, it didn't mean much. So do you know what the event here, why they put it on? Um, not really. I, saw, I just saw the ad, and I haven't heard anyone talk about it now. It's not, it's not a, like a major topic of conversation in 1991? I, I, I guess not, because I haven't heard anyone talk about it. Okay. Um, it's funny. Back when I was living in Crown Heights, anytime I'd mention the neighborhood to people who hadn't spent time there, the first thing they'd bring up was the riot. That's how they identified Crown Heights. 
The same way we think of Watts or Ferguson or Kenosha. For many of us who don't live in these places, they exist as a kind of shorthand for violent unrest. But that's not how the people living in those places see themselves, even if the underlying problems that led to the riot still exist. Crown Heights remains vastly underfunded. There have been many deeply disturbing incidents of anti-Semitic violence in the neighborhood in recent years. And there's still a lot of resentment from Black residents. Talk of political favoritism and cops cracking down in the neighborhood. And there's still an anti-Semitic tendency to see the Hasidim as a proxy for the NYPD, as opposed to a community that's been able to cultivate an easier relationship with them. The neighborhood's rapid gentrification has only compounded and complicated all of these issues. And this isn't just limited to Crown Heights. Over the last few years, incidents of anti-Semitism have risen across the country. And the killing of Black Americans at the hands of law enforcement reinvigorated a movement against police brutality. A couple of weeks ago, I visited my parents in the neighborhood I grew up in, the Upper West Side. Theirs isn't a fancy block. It's pretty economically and racially diverse. But the community is made up of a lot of wealthy people. There's real tension there, too. But one of the blocks was also recently renamed in honor of Sesame Street, which feels like the city's way of saying, this is the Paragon, the most idyllic neighborly place that we can imagine. Can you tell me how to get our to Sesame Street? 63rd and Broadway. I've been thinking a lot about that idea, neighborliness, what it means to be a good neighbor, and what happens when the relationships in a neighborhood break down. We're told that we shouldn't just like our neighbors, but love them. That to lie to or even envy them is a sin. And in a place like the Upper West Side, that can be a lot easier to do. I mean, what's not to love about your neighbors when the streets are clean and safe and people mostly see eye to eye politically and the median income is six figures? But just about double the poverty rate. Pit people within the same district against each other for resources. And that instinct towards neighborliness can wear down real fast. All my life, I would hear that what caused the Crown Heights riot was racial and religious hatred. In that slice of Brooklyn, in these two communities, anti-Semitism and racism were just endemic. And for me, at least according to my dad, to be both Black and Jewish was to be in constant war with oneself. But it's just not that simple. First of all, since starting this project, I feel more embraced by the Hasidic community in Crown Heights than I do by the liberal Jews I grew up with on the Upper West Side. And also, that reductive version of the story leaves out the city's responsibility. Decades of municipal disinvestment and disregard, a brutal and discriminatory brand of policing, cynical politicians eager to exploit it all. And despite the neighborhood's outdated reputation, so many people in Crown Heights recognize this and they're eager to fix it. It would be naive to think that things are fully all good. The government's priorities are still in many ways out of whack. Structurally, there's still rampant inequality, but there's also a commitment among a lot of people in the community to do what they can to correct those harms. As one rabbi I spoke with recently told me, the all good vibe isn't completely phony. He said Black and Jewish community leaders actually talk to each other now and resolve differences in a way they never would have in the past. And there are little things that other Crown Heights residents have described to me, 
Disagreements over noise complaints or double parking that don't end up with a call to the police. It can seem like nothing, but it makes a real difference. A local community board recently banded together to defeat a development project that they feared would hasten gentrification even more. Community organizers have formed groups seeking to end conflicts without violence or police intervention. And there's a whole network of mutual aid groups providing resources in ways that the city has failed to. This might not be what we immediately think of when we hear the commandment, love thy neighbor. But maybe it could be. Maybe it looks more like this. Love Thy Neighbor is hosted by me, Collier Meyerson. The show was written by Noah Remnick and myself. Just Jupiter is our producer, and Justine Daum is our managing producer. Production assistance and research by Yinka Rickford Angwin. Our senior producer is Henry Malofsky. Joel Lovell is our editor. Fact-checking by Natsumi Ajisaka. Original music is by Will Johnson. Our engineers are Davy Sumner and Jason Richards. Our show art, which includes a David Burns photo from the Associated Press, was designed by Kurt Courtney, Josefina Francis, and Lauren Vieira at Cadence 13. Special thanks to Leela Day, Jasmine Hughes, Mordechai Lightstone, Ike Shreeskandaraja, Zandra Ellen, Grace Chen, Moira Curran, and Hadim Jang. Legal services for Pineapple Street by Bianca Grimshaw, Granderson Day Rocher, and Katie Ali Mohammadi, and Vernissa Washington at Donaldson Caliph Perez. This show is a production of Pineapple Street Studios. Our executive producers are Max Linsky and Jenna Weisberman. Thanks for listening. You know that science solves crimes. Forensic science is exciting, challenging, and most of all, rewarding work. But there is a shortage of qualified individuals in this field. Hi, I'm Terry with Loyola University of Maryland's Forensic Science Department. Loyola is one of the only colleges in the country offering advanced degrees in forensic pattern analysis and biological forensics. Our courses, taught by forensic experts, feature hands-on training and small class sizes. They are based on real crime scene and forensic examiner training programs to ensure you are ready to make a difference. Our programs are open to students from a variety of academic backgrounds because we believe everyone can contribute to solving crimes. So what are you waiting for? Discover the excitement of forensic science at Loyola University, Maryland. Visit loyola.edu forward slash forensic for more information. That's loyola.edu forward slash forensic because you are ready to make a difference. Join one of Loyola University, Maryland's forensic science programs today.